Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I am Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, February 19th, 2020. And so I have to ask, given that virtually the entire country is encased in ice at this point, what temperature is it out in L.A. right now, or...? Uh, it's probably 74. I just had a lovely stroll with the dog, Jim. I'm in shorts right now. And uh, so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Not to rub it in your face, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, February in New England, you're telling yourself winter's almost over. And, you know, and, and winter's also. There we go. Yeah. There we go. February is just one sort of continuous kick to the grind. Before we get started here, when we were finishing up the, our last show, you were headed out the door to go to that Beauty and the Beast drive-in. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, that was really, really great. It was this tiny little sort of setup in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. There were only 15 cars there. Jordan, now I'm blanking on his name, the kid that's in all the uh, holiday specials, Mm -hmm. the kid who dances and sings. Do you know who I'm talking about, Jim? Mm -hmm. Okay, he was there. So I saw he, you know, great to see him Mm -hmm. out and about. But yeah, I mean, the the Beauty and the Beast still totally rules. Mm -hmm. So... It was delightful. And just the film or no shorts or anything? Just the um, the film and, what was it, Mr. Duck Steps Out. Oh, cool. Which I think is a good, um, that's a good Valentine's Day double feature. No, that, that works. It definitely works. Yeah. Okay. Well, following up on other news from last week, did you catch the piece over at Cartoon Brew? I want to say Chris Merlandry. The guy who helped get Blue Sky up out of the ground was looking back fondly at Blue Sky and sort of mourning its loss. That was Deadline. I did not read it completely, mm. but I was fascinated by it. I, I just haven't gotten a chance to, okay. to no, you're right, circle everybody. back. How, how was it? It was a great piece. But again, I just I, I have to say I'm still not past this yet. In fact, there's still a part of me that the whole Demona thing, you know, that they were this close to a finished film. And Patrick Osborne, the guy who brought us Feast at Disney, that Academy Award winning short, you know, was going to go to strut his stuff with a feature. And now we don't get that. And we did get news this week that for the first time in, what, five years, we're going to get a brand new short out of Disney. Theatrical short. Theatrical short. We've had, yeah. the, we've had the short circuit program. This is true. Some, this is true for uh, Disney Plus, but you're right. And a lot of and a lot of Olaf and uh, Frozen material, also which, true. Uh, hello, Ava, we got to say, give go. a shout out to her. There we go. But yeah, it's the first theatrical short. Mm. Did you see the poster? Because I think I know what the story is just based on the poster. I know you love spoiling things for yourself based on images. <laughs> yes, I'm... or getting the or getting the art of book ahead of time or whatever. So this one is is us again, right? That's the title, and yeah, written and directed by the head of story on Big Hero Six, Zach Parrish. Yep. So the logline basically it's a. An elderly African American couple go out for a night and they relive their youth, right? That's uh, through dance. Well, the, yeah, they look like they're actually transformed mm. into the younger versions of themselves, which reminds me of the very terrible uh, Steven Spielberg section of the Twilight Zone movie. But oh. uh, what I've heard is that this one will leave you totally sobbing. Okay. Well, so. You will see it in the theatrical presentation of Raya and the Last Dragon Mm -hmm. starting on March 5th. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a theater that is open near you, Mm -hmm. which I don't know where theaters are open. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple near you, Jim. But if you don't go see it theatrically, it'll be on Disney Plus in June. Okay. So 
Yeah. By the way, Drew is not wrong. The kick the can segment in the middle of the Twilight Zone movie, among the, the worst things Steven Spielberg has ever done in his life. It, it, yes. It's just- well, you know, the story behind that is that he was going to do a scary short mm. And then the, you know, catastrophic accident happened. That's right. And so he said, I need to kind of sugar this up a little bit. And sugar it, he did, Jim. Yeah, you can get diabetes. In fact, that's where I got it, I bet. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay, well, burying the needle in the completely anti-diabetes direction, what about the Cruella trailer what what did you think about that this i was very into the cruella trailer what did what did you think i it's a lot of bold choices yeah what was interesting for me was to watch sort of the social media reaction and it's like oh great this is disney going for joker and it's like oh i hated that i thought that was so stupid and so easy yeah yeah yeah. the only thing it shares the joker is a loose time period because this one is also set in the late 70s early 80s and the fact that it's an origin story Mm. but I love the look of it. I think Craig Gillespie is awesome. He directed three really interesting movies for Disney. The Fright Night remake, mm-hmm. which was part of their deal with DreamWorks, as well as Million Dollar Arm and The Finest Hours. Oh, so he yeah. has a really interesting pedigree with the company, and he always shoots things really well. And he was the director of the Oscar-nominated I, Tanya, which is great. And I just can't wait. I, I hear the soundtrack is very cool. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, I think Emma Stone is going to just kill it. But I was very into it. It's interesting you mentioned the, the, the Finest Hours, which happened here in New England. It was also shot in, in the Boston area. Probably not the best film to watch in February, especially given how many people are encased in ice and this sort of thing. But that's a, a genuinely great movie. Yeah, it is. Just did not connect with an audience when it came out. It's at moments like that that you kind of understand Disney pivoting into subscription streaming services, because at least then you're kind of guaranteed an audience. We're convincing people. Also, the, their finest hour, not the greatest title. No. It was also like one of the last big 3D movies, which was cool oh. if you saw it in 3D. It was just very dynamic. Interesting and, point. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. but anyway, I suggest you you seek out all of his films. He's a very interesting... He also directs those annoying emu commercials for Liberty Mutual. <laughs> the Limu Emu, That's those are him, oh. so he... Uh, wow, yeah. okay. Yeah. You had me on board until you brought that up. Oh, jeez. Sorry, I know that emu yeah. scares you. Yeah, it does. <laughs> like, I have issues. Well, as long as we're, we're talking about subscription streaming services and the like... What do you make of the Skydance animation news with Luck and Spellbound now officially headed Apple? More to the point, they they signed a a huge deal with Apple TV, didn't they? Yeah, there's a there's an animated series coming as well, Mm. which is based on a children's book. Mm. And 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 it makes sense because as as I've joked here and on Light the Fuse repeatedly, Paramount just hates releasing movies. Uh, so why would they actually follow through and release these two animated movies? But yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you're, you were seeing kind of the Steve Jobs, John Lasseter mm-hmm. relationship replicated in a way, just the kind of Apple crossover mm-hmm. with him. Those two images, I couldn't tell if they were from the same movie or two different movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we should mention the the other news in relation to at least luck. We now have Jane Fonda joining the cast as a luck dragon. Yeah, she like runs the luck organization or something. 
there was a lot of confusion because people thought that she was replacing Emma Emma Thompson, who left when she learned that Lassiter was coming over. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure she had a great experience with him on Brave. But um, yeah, I don't know what. But then they're saying it's not the Emma Stone Emma. Sorry, Emma Thompson mm-hmm. character. So I don't know what is going on. But Luck follows around the unluckiest girl in the world. Mm-hmm who joins forces with magical creatures to uncover a force more powerful than luck itself. Hmm. So make of that what you will discuss amongst yourselves. I don't know. What do you, how do you feel about it? Forgive me for making a weird pivot here, but we were were talking about Mr. Lassiter and this weekend on HBO, we have that four part documentary series, Alan versus Pharaoh debuting which i guess it's produced with cooperation of you know mia farrow and her children and it it's supposedly very 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 one-sided but on the other hand it really sort of lays open all of the, the stuff that was laid at woody allen's feet it's supposedly pretty devastating yeah if we look at the books that have been written already about harvey weinstein and this documentary series about woody allen what do you think the chances are when Luck or Spellbound finally shows up on Apple TV that we're not going to see a similar set of stories about John Lasseter? I mean, first when he stepped away from Disney and when they formally separated, uh, there were were a few stories in the trades. I want to say The Hollywood Reporter had a, a pretty large piece, but... A lot of people were reluctant at that point to come forward and be quoted directly or that sort of thing. But with two and three years now since, do you think we're going to get the same sort of thing that we just were getting with Alan and with with, with Weinstein with Lasseter? I don't, I don't know. I wonder if Disney would try to put the kibosh on that. I'm still getting over the Michael Jackson documentary from a couple of years ago, mm. uh, Finding Neverland, mm. which was so rough. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm still a little confused as to sort of what went on with Lassiter mm-hmm. and what happened there. So I, w- I would love more clarification. I, I would too. But at the same time, I just find myself at sixes and sevens. I mean, I, I genuinely respect what the man did moving the CG in a direction that, you know, we're, you know, now, you know, if you think about all the films today that are made this way and storytelling and that sort of thing, but, it, oh, you know, but at the same time as a, as a man whose daughter is trying to get into animation in that field, and you know, the fact that there's one less guy who's groping girls at parties, it's like, okay, this is a good thing, but it just sort of like... Right. If this comes out, uh, you know, and again, it's something like this Alan documentary or, or the, the Weinstein book here now, I feel worse for Nancy Lasseter and the kids than I do for John. Well, I hope you... Uh, what makes them feel better is their... Never-ending stream of money, Jim. I think that that uh, you should not feel bad. I mean, I I would hate for people to have to relive that period mm. as well, which you would have to do, obviously, in a documentary like this. Yeah. But, yeah, it would be interesting to figure out what went down and how long it went on and how many other people that revelation could bring down mm. in terms of when it was... When it was first noticed, who did nothing about it? You know, is this something that Iger knew about when he bought the company? I would really love to know that kind of stuff. True, true. So, In other Pixar-related news, did you see the the photos today coming out of Hong Kong where they've debuted the brand new Woody Walkaround character? 
Yeah, he looks great. He does. He does. But it's just, it's so funny because for years when they did, they were working on the Toy Story characters. It was always about Buzz because the the people who had to wear the Buzz outfit were winding up getting crippled by just the sheer weight of it, or you know the fact that it, with the backpack and everything. Oh yeah, that that you know I, I guess the first version of it was seventy pounds, just the upper body piece, and you know the the, the poor guys had come off stage and it just sort of like I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm screwing up my back, so. But it's just, it's nice to see Woody's getting a little love there. Well, you, you're always good about spotting new walk-around characters. I remember you and I were at some press event, and you leaned over to me and you said, that's the new Asian Mickey. <laughs> because it was the Mickey from, I don't know if it was, was it Hong Kong or Shanghai. It's Shanghai, yes, yes. Okay. He has sort of a more rounded face. He's a little bit more expressive. Generally cuter, well, I would say. Well, no, that's it exactly. Mickey. Buy more plush. Buy more plush. Right. And and speaking of, of shows that I guess people are hoping start pushing sales of plush, what do you make of the this Gremlins prequel that they've already decided to renew for a second season? Well, what I think that whenever they these animated shows are quote unquote renewed for a second season, mm-hmm. I think that they are just they just build more build more episodes into the the initial production mm-hmm. schedule. Because you and I both know what hell it is to bring a animated show mm-hmm. to life. Yeah. I mean, the production schedules are just crazy Mm -hmm. in there, especially if they're 11-minute episodes. I'm not sure what Mm -hmm. Gremlins is, but the amount of overlap in between episodes is just really, really staggering. So I think they just ordered more episodes in that initial batch. So, um, But did you see the casting? It's like got this amazing cast. Absolutely. Is it now a new rule in Hollywood that you've got a show based on a hit franchise and Ming-Na Wen must be signed? She's unstoppable. Yeah, She's unstoppable. Well, no, I, I don't get me wrong. I, I love her work, but it's like every time I turn around, oh, of course, there you are. Yes. And joining her is her Mulan co-star, yes, B.D. Wong. Yes, And James Hong, who was also in, in... James Hong is a legend, first of all. I'm just happy that guy's still working. Yeah. And Matthew Reese from The Americans mm. and, and Perry Mason. You know who we haven't seen on this list, though, Jim? Mm-hmm. Howie Mandel. The young lady who is actually now voicing gizmo you know proudly announced it on twitter but yeah howie's not back at well i guess america's got talent is keeping him very busy yeah right you don't think he can go into a booth for 30 minutes a day and go i can do it i can do it jim well okay (laughs) if Put me in, coach. <laughs> if it doesn't pan out for the young woman on Twitter, we we, we had now have a fallback. Yes, yes. That show's going to debut at HBO Max. And while we're talking about animation things for subscription streaming services, so, well, again, this isn't animated, the, the, the Adams Family. This is a live action. In fact, it's Wednesday? Is, is that the title? Is that- That's the name, yeah. It sort of follows her in school when she's a little bit older. But I thought it was worth bringing up for a couple of reasons. One mm-hmm. is that Tim Burton started almost in TV doing that bizarre uh, kung fu version of Hansel and Gretel mm-hmm. for Disney, which was aired one time on Halloween night. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which yes. was live action. But I also wanted to bring up the fact that he, at one point, was attached to an Adams Family stop motion movie for illumination That's right yeah many years ago mm-hmm. it looks like yeah 2010 mm-hmm. so 11 years ago 
So it was going to be a stop motion 3D movie. Mm-hmm. So we were aging up Wednesday and following her in school. It sounds a little Riverdale-ish. Yeah, she's in some school. I think it's called Ever. Yeah, Ever Nevermore Academy. Okay. And she is dealing with a local murder, uh, monsters, uh, supernatural things, and her family, obviously. But did you ever get to see the Adams Family musical that played on Broadway a few years ago? It was uh, they had Nathan Lane as Gomez and BB Newith as Morticia. Uh, no, I heard it was great, though. That's kind of a, a, a matter of opinion. The, the fact is that there's kind <laughs> of a, a famous story of Nathan Lane is backstage in his dressing room and the great Broadway diva uh, Elaine Stritch comes backstage after after a performance and sort of walks into Nathan's you know, dressing room and he turns around to look at her and she, she announces from the door, whatever they're paying you, it's not enough. Because evidently he really had to work to sort of put that show over. I mean, it does have a, a couple of great numbers. If you head over to YouTube, there's a couple of them there. It only ran for a year, like a little over a year, yep. a year and a half, but for 722 performances in that time. And again, as long as Lane was in the show, they sold out. It's one of the only shows that they, when they went to tour it, they actually went back in and rewrote a lot of the book and restaged a lot of the show before they then put the show out on tour. So that tells you a lot about what Nathan was doing to sort of put it over the top. You're talking to someone whose last live theater experience was the touring company of Escape from Margaritaville, (laughs) uh, which I saw on February 28th, uh, 2020, and left during the intermission. So, yeah. I'll never know if that volcano exploded, Jim. That's That's all I'll say. Wow. All right. I, I know Jimmy will not be happy to hear about this. That's all right. He's got some cheeseburgers in paradise, Jim. <laughs> all right. And as long as we're talking about unlikely show business things, what do you make of this animated merman uh, comedy uh, that, that Fox has got in the works? It's very interesting how Fox is really doubling down on, on its animated programming. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty interesting to me. Mm-hmm. It's it was it, It's coming from veterans of the righteous gemstones and i think you should leave and i don't know it sounds pretty pretty interesting it's about a a mermaid prince who juggles life between the ocean the only home he's ever known and his new life on land with his human mother in the breathtaking metropolis of tampa florida oh no so (laughs) (laughs) oh that sounds that sounds pretty funny. That but, does. You know. That does. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, suddenly I'm on board. Yeah. Right up until Tampa, Florida, I, I was hesitant, <laughs> but oh, Tampa. Yes. Okay. Now. Yes. So we have that coming. And just this week, we we got news that we, we've got kind of on the heels of, of last year's pandemic special from South Park, which I was just start. Did you see the ratings for this thing? It was there. No. All right, they, their pandemic special, which ran back in September uh, September 30th of last year, was the highest rated episode for the show in seven years, with, with 4.4 million people tuning in that night. Did you actually get to see this, where they, they revealed? No. I've, I've, I've sort of been off the South Park train for the last few years, so okay, well, I did, you'll just have to recap it. You know their take on, on Mickey Mouse, sort of the brutal corporate keeping yes. everybody in line? Mickey and Stan's dad 
have a hand in how things got started in Wuhan. And because this is a family show, I can't get into details, but it involves unnatural relations with a bat. And it always amazes me when I watch South Park in action like this and, and what they do with the Disney characters. It's like, where is Disney legal? How do they actually get away with this? Is, is that parody? Is that with the blanket protection there? Or... I guess so. Oh, I guess so. So on the heels of the huge rating success of that that one, again, that was a special hour-long episode. We have another hour-long episode called the, the South Park Vaccination Special, which will air on March 10th. And if the pandemic special is, is, is any indication, I would imagine Bob Chapek is going to be sitting somewhere with a, you know, a, either a, a bottle of gym or, or a, a, a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. I think that's the only way he's going to ride this thing out. And while, you know, we're talking about people who are going to think animation that's going to upset people, later in March, uh, just five days after uh, the South Park vaccination episode airs, we're going to get our final DuckTales, which, again, they've made it kind of an interesting choice to go out really with a bang uh, that, that I guess the final three episodes they've decided to air as one 90-minute long special. Have I got that right? Yeah, they did the same thing, I think, with the Gravity Falls finale when that was all done. Do you remember the battle for weird Mageddon oh, yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah. So taking a page out of that book. So 90 minutes long, airs on March 15th, beginning at 7 p.m. And I don't know if you've seen what, like, Matt Youngberg or Francisco Aguinal had been, they've been tweeting out. It's kind of interesting. These guys still seem to be sort of angling for the show to be revived or saved or something. I mean, it's just sort of, you know, suggesting, you know, it's right there. It could be picked up for a fourth season. Yeah, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem like <laughs> no, it, it it doesn't. So I mean, they've got an amazing guest cat. It sounds like everybody's sort of coming back mm-hmm. for the last uh, batch. But did you see that Adam Pally is also a voice? Uh, yeah, from, he's from Happy Endings. Yeah. And I think he's Baloo. Is my oh, guess? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That, that I want to. You know, uh, people hate it when I drop uh, Ducktales news, Jim. So I'll just you know. <laughs> Just leave that there. <laughs> okay. So still making friends. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just to, to remind folks, this final set of episodes begins airing on February 22nd. And I guess we'll get a new one every Monday right up until the you know the Big Bang uh, finale. On- I thought there were nine left, but it's only... It- it only is six, really, if if we're counting the last one as three. Yeah, I, I think that's that's how they've, they've chose to burn them off. But Ugh. that brings us up to date. And, uh, you know, when, Drew, when we get back from a quick commercial break here, Drew and I will share an interview that we did with Tim Story, the director of the new Tom and Jerry movie. Before we get started, we, we should let people know that the Tom and Jerry film debuts this coming friday uh february 26th yeah it'll be this friday when people listen to this Mm. for sure february 26th okay and you and i uh got the chance to to see the film out ahead of talking with tim this month is the 81st anniversary of their first tom and jerry film uh puss gets the boot being released to theaters Uh, mgm put it out on uh, february 10th 1940 and 
I it just it fascinates me that these really 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 violent cartoons. In fact, they they were what they really considered the springboard for Itchy and Scratchy on on The Simpsons. Yeah, and the movie, let me tell you, is really. <laughs> Violent too, so you will get everything. But but violent in a a, a cartoon slapstick kind yes. of way. We want yes. to stress that. Do you want to run down the cast or? Yeah, sure. Chloe Grace Moretz is the lead. We've got Michael Pena in there from Ant Man, Colin Jost, Rob Delaney, Kim Jong. The, just do a little bit more history on, on Tom and Jerry. What's fascinating to me is again these vi- ridiculously violent cartoons were also hugely popular. In fact, from the, the, the late 40s into the 50s, they won seven Academy Awards for Best Animated Short. Oh, I had no idea, actually. Yeah, they actually taught Disney's Silly Symphony series had been the record holder up until that point. And Tom and Jerry, just as, you know, sort of theatrical cartoons died, they nailed the seventh one. So it's literally Tom and Jerry and Silly Symphonies are the most winning animation series. And then there was this weird period where Tom, um, where Chuck Jones animated a bunch of the, you know, took over the characters at MGM. They're weird cartoons. They are, it's, you know, if you know uh, Chuck Jones's comic sensibility from the Roadrunner cartoons or, or you know, Duck and Muck or that sort of thing. It's that, but it's the characters are also drawn with extremely cute eyes, and it's it's this weird sense of humor along with a cloying cartoon design. And then, honestly, the weirdest moment is in 1965, MGM sells the Tom and Jerry cartoons to CBS, and they start running them on Saturday morning. But what happens is, is CBS is going through the catalog they're looking at like, wow, these are really violent. And they're also kind of racist. There was a, a character, Mammy Two-Shoes, that you only saw from the knees down. Yeah, I think we talked about her on a previous episode. We did. We actually. did. And, and yeah. what's kind of interesting is that one of the last things that Chuck Jones did uh, with Tom and Jerry is his company reanimated all of the scenes involving Mammy Two-Shoes. They erased all of her dialogue. They brought June Foray in to record new dialogue, and only and they repainted all of the black housekeeper from the knees down to a white Irish housekeeper. So it's June Foray doing her sort of Marjorie Maine impression. This is where a lot of kids of, of my generation and going forward, this is where they first got to see Tom and Jerry was this this Saturday morning. Thing and now Tim, on the other hand, he wasn't born till 1970. He's a real Tom and Jerry fan. He really studied the shorts. Let's let him talk about how he made this film happen. And, and again, we'll we'll start off now with Drew and Tim talking. Hello, how are hey you? There. What's up, Drew? How are you? It's so exciting to uh, to chat with you about this. I was wondering what what did you look at in terms of the animation live action hybrid obviously i think roger rabbit is sort of like the citizen kane of that right but but did you look at at other things when when approaching this yeah i must admit not really i kind of went back to roger rabbit then i then i went to the original tom and jerry cartoon you know shorts okay and you know look i i did you know check out you know the original mary poppins you know uh it was but i kind of stuck to that i kind of knew and I had seen, you know, we've seen many, many before. Like I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the other films that have taken the characters that made them CGI characters 
um, inside of the real world. So I had seen so many of those, but those weren't the ones that I were going to use for the, the base of what we were creating here. So after watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I must admit, I went into my own little cocoon and okay. figured out that, okay, we're going to now um, create these characters with, with real actors, obviously human actors, quote unquote. And um, I just kind of knew or felt I knew what this film should be, what it, how it should move and how it should, you know, and it was trying to figure out kind of a tone because we were dealing with two right. separate worlds. You had an animated world that had certain rules. And then of course we as humans have our own rules. And um, I just wanted to be sure that those merged uh, correct, um, seamlessly and, and hopefully people would like it. Right. Well, can you talk about the, the look of the characters? Because it's an interesting kind of 2D, 3D-ish look that maintains a lot of the integrity of the original characters, but kind of updates them. How did you kind of land on this? Were there, yeah. Was there a lot of exploration? There was a, yeah, there, were, there was some exploration in the beginning um, of mm -hmm. figuring out how, uh, for lack of a better word, how thick do you make the, the 2D? We always call it a 2D plus because yeah. we were never going to go with characters where that were completely, say, round. You know, in the event you turned them around, you, you weren't supposed to see the, the full volume of them. But we also knew that one thing that we were going to push was the environments they were in. So we knew that we were going to take lighting and have a lot of fun with lighting because we thought that that would, would kind of give this a, a, um, a fuller look, a, a more complex look. And so at times, like when Tom is in the rain or when they're in the, um, the, the animal shelter, which is kind of like the, our, their, our jail cell, um, we knew we were going to have, you know, moody lighting. So we knew that that light might have to wrap around them slightly. So I must admit, we went from shot to shot and figured out how much or how little we could do. We found that in wider shots, we could have more of the thickness of the character. But we, knew, but we also found that in being close up to them, we would have less. So we just kind of, it, it was actually a shot by shot um, base. And, and, and that always uh, told us where we should go once we saw it. Well, it's interesting too, because in the rain, it's like the rain is sort of running down him, yeah. like, you know, on a piece of glass or something. It's yeah. not like super detailed. Um, was that was that effects animation also sort of taking that same approach? Yeah, uh, Fra Fraser Churchill, who was uh, my visual effects uh, supervisor, he had a lot of ideas on how to um, how to how to you know show this, and we saw many early tests. And sometimes we would pull back on how real the you know um, uh, specifically the sweat. You know, there's right. there's some sweat that happens with him. But we also had to remember well the sweat was coming from Tom, so we took a liberty to make that water or sweat um, more cartoonish, as you okay. might say. But when he was in the rain, the rain was not coming from him. So. It was, we just had a lot of fun in talking. We had like ridiculous conversations about the rules of this film, which were actually quite fun um, because you would get in arguments about the thickness of water and, you know, and, and um, but we, we, we had some fun with it, you know, um, even yeah. with the, the saliva from Spike, you know, we just had a lot of fun with what, you know, how real or how, how, how fake uh, we wanted this to look. Was there ever any sort of pressure to give them voices? I imagine at some point some executive said, Kevin Hart for yeah. Tom. I mean, sure. <laughs> there were conversations about it, but I was adamant to not go outside the rules that Hanna-Barbera had set up in their original shorts. You know, in their shorts, 
Tom and Jerry just did not talk. You know, every now and then Tom would break the fourth wall and say something or he would sing. And so we did that with ours or they would both scream. But there were certain rules that those original 100 or so shorts set up. And I was adamant to make sure that they never we never broke those rules because um, for some reason, other animals talked and Hanna-Barbera made it a point for these two characters not to talk. So I wanted to I wanted to honor that. What was the hardest shot to, to pull off? I mean, there are some pretty complex things outside and, you know, in natural environments. And what, what was the hardest sort of shot to pull off? Oh, gosh, good question. Um, really, the New York chase. Um, okay. We just knew that, you know, there was no way in the world we were going to be able to shoot much in New York, especially not a chase. Right. Um, so it was kind of, create, you know, the, a weird, a weird merging of like from a CGI truck to real truck footage to them being on the streets and getting digital photography that we would later make move and some footage of uh, the cement ground, you know, creating um, CGI skateboards. So there was a lot, a lot of that was a kind of us constantly going back and forth on how to bring this chase to fruition and and. And uh, it was difficult, but luckily, I, I think we all turned away with something that was uh, that we were really proud of. Well, I mean, you've worked with visual effects throughout your career, and obviously on the Fantastic Four movies, which you know were so long ago. How has how how has visual how have visual effects changed since then? And how has oh. your sort of approach to working with visual effects changed? Oh, they've changed so much. I mean, okay. everything is much faster. I mean, on the original. Fan for film, this is going to date me. On the original Fan for film, we actually were looking at, once we did an effect, we had to look at it on film, you know? Um, right. Even, you know, and, and, I, and I remember with that film, we did shoot the special effects and digital cameras, but we were using film to do that original movie. So it's, it's, really, it's really crazy how much it's come, you know, in terms of what we can capture, what we can pull off in-house, what we can pull off, you know, what, what we have to send out. So it's, it's come so far and that's why to make movies in this, um, in this realm, you know, right now of today, your imagination has no limitations. And so with this film, what was fun about this is we could really go into a room and go, well, what do we want them to do? You know, as opposed to, can we do that? It, it's always, you just kind of think about what you want to do and go for it. And um, the visual effects artists, they're, they're just so brilliant. They can pull it off. Tim, I love how you reached back to get the stuff from the actual cartoons from the 40s. Like, for example, the Animal Tornado. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you managed to get Michael in there? Yeah. Well, what was fun about this is Michael is such a physical actor in the sense that everything from him being pulled by Spike, when he's on the street being pulled by Spike, we actually at times just gave him a little leash thing about that big and he would do all the sliding and all of that stuff like that. So when it came to the animal tornado and, and getting him inside of it, you wouldn't believe how ridiculous it looked when we were shooting it, which was we had blue screen all around him and pads and he would just throw himself around and say the words. And, and that's Michael, like he would, stuff that we, sometimes we had rigs prepared and Michael would just go, well, don't you just want me to do this and yell that at this point? Well, I'll just do it, you know? And you just kind of, you know, there's a moment, I don't know if you catch it, where he's from the bar, he's pulled and he goes down and then he jumps back up, you know? And that's all Michael Pena. So we had a lot of fun um, coming up with the ideas and then figure out whether Michael actually needed help pulling it off. 
by the way, New York has never looked better than it looks in this film. Oh, thank um, you. You know, you did a great, great job. First of all, obviously, you shot this pre-COVID. When did you get your, like, uh, your stuff in Central Park? Well, what was interesting is we got the stuff in Central Park actually at some point before COVID, I think. Because um, we actually did also get a few more things um, post, you know, when COVID was actually happening. Stuff like... Um, uh, when the pigeon falls down on the ground and there's a person on a bicycle that rides, rides by. There's a few things that we actually went out there and and believe it or not, we had to actually remove masks. You know, we had to actually go in digitally remove masks from some of the people walking and talking. But that particular um, park shot, I think we actually were able to get, as I like to say, BC <laughs> before COVID. And um, and then there were other things that we, we got, but we had when Tom stops in front of um, uh, Madison Square Garden, we had to erase a bunch of masks or either tur turn them flesh color so you didn't see them. So it's, uh, it's really interesting. Wow. Well, can you talk about working with the actors and what, what that was like? I mean, there's a lot of great like line of sight and you know, everybody seems very much in the same space. Did that sort of take a lot of you know, rehearsals or how, what was that process like? Well, interestingly enough, something that I had never worked with is puppets. We actually had a puppeteer on set to do Tom's stuff as well as a guy that was being actually acted like a dog, uh, you know, knee pads and a padding on his hands and actually barked and ran around like spikes so that the actors actually had eye, eye line as well as action, you know, so that there was always something being tugged, you know, if, if whether it was Colin or whether it was Michael who was holding Spike, they had something that, that moved their body when they would, you know, when they would tug. So we, we tried every method, you know, even to the point where with the puppet for Tom, since Tom didn't speak, it actually worked out perfect. And then some of the actors would sometime want to do the first couple of takes with the puppet because it gave them so much to, to work against. So we, we tried every, you know, method we could to make sure uh, the actors had all the tools that they needed to give us a great performance. Was it hard for, for some of them? I mean, did it take some, you know, in? it, it, Took a little. Luckily, like Michael had done a lot of um, visual effects work, especially when right. he was in the Ant Man movies. And then you had Chloe, and Chloe had a fun, a fun uh, perspective on it. She uh, she said, "I was a child actor, so many times the actors would leave her alone to do her side of it." So she said, "I got really good at acting by myself." So <laughs> um, it, she when she said that, I went, "Oh my gosh, she's just, she's such she's so brilliant in that." So we um. We found many ways, and they as well found many ways to to uh, make it not so difficult. If you go back over the 81-year history of Tom and Jerry, it's cartoon slapstick violence. Nobody actually gets hurt. You know, they get hit in the face with a shovel, and then their face is shaped like a shovel for a moment. But throughout the history of these characters, you know, they, they, they've walked them back and forth from really violent to, hey, they're just friends. And, you know, when you were getting started on this thing, you really do lean into some, you do some wonderful slapstick in this thing. There's some amazing action scenes, but did, what were the conversations like with the studio? I mean, how much was too much or that sort of thing? Yeah, I have to give them complete credit. I asked them early on, are you guys in any way concerned about the amount of violence that I'm going to put in this movie? And they said, no. They said, make a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And that was the kind of freedom I got from day one. And I said, okay, you know, even to the point where I was in London and we were 
having some of the animators do certain things. And I say, guys, it's got to be violent. When he hits such and such or when he, it's got to hurt. And we push the envelope. And I, and I don't think we ever went completely over the line, but we always pushed it because when I went back and studied the, the old, you know, uh, it's, it's weird how much you know in your head, but then you go back and study it. I was amazed at how violent those cartoons were. And even to the point where when we started um, uh, researching some of the sound effects, they actually use gunshots as some of the impact sounds. So we found that sometimes we would take that and you know pull it back a little bit and put like a, a weird sound over it or, or a sound that sounds a little less, less harsh. You know? So we actually did most of our pullback in the, in the sound design of this movie, but the actual action, look, at some point, Tom has a uh, pulls out a, a a freaking chainsaw. You know, <laughs> we never we never held back to what the violence was going to be here, and thankfully, um, Warner Brothers allowed us to go for it. Was anybody ever nervous when they saw the final version? Were they like, no, okay. absolutely not. You know, it, it was um, that's what was that was incredible about this experience. They allowed us to do it, and we found that the even the kids, as, as we were able to do some tests, not a lot of tests, but as we were able to do some tests, we found that no parents, you know, the parents actually applauded the way we approached the violence, that we always made it, you know, as fun as it can be. Um, and, um, you know, that, that is a, you know, that is like a fingers crossed because we all always knew that if the parents started boycotting us in terms of violence, that we'd have to change it. And luckily we didn't have to. I mean, going back over those old cartoons, did you sort of, did you figure out what made these characters so enduring and sort of tried to apply it to, to this movie? I always just came back to, I have a twin sister and I, I've made it my, you know, my life's work to get on her nerves. And I just kind of, you know, went back to, they, for some reason, you know, I think all of us, whether it's a fight with a sibling or it's a fight with a really, really close friend, um, there's a love there. And, and when you can, you know, have, when you can have, unapologetic fights and, and, and create havoc in somebody's world, whether it, it, it's really trying to, to teach them a lesson or whether it's just trying to um, uh, uh, make them laugh. This kind of stuff is fun. And I think as a kid, the other side of it is, when do you get to destroy a house and not get kicked out of the house? You know, Tom and Jerry always did that. And I wanted to make it a point um, to do that in this film. And I think as I look back, there is just something about um, uh, family, friends fighting and giving each other crap and making their world a complete hell. That there's some, there's a lot of enjoyment that we get out of that as a young, <laughs> as, a, as a as a child. Uh, what's kind of intriguing about this story is that in the end, there really isn't a villain. I mean, what, that what I kind of enjoyed about this story is that everybody gets redeemed. Even even Michael's character, who clearly sets you know the the whole wedding laid waste to in motion uh, was sure. that a deliberate choice early on or did that develop with the script well i think it kind of developed inside of of shooting the movie you know um once you brought michael pena into this role there is this thing there's the, there's this, just this lovable quality about what he he who he is and what he created with terrence and as i've always done and i think any villain what makes a villain really great is that when you when you finally take a look at their side of it, they're not, they're not wrong, you know, <laughs> like, or, or their plan was, um, 
well thought out or what, whatever you want to call it. you you kind of understand their belief system and that's what happened with michael and i think as we wrote the, as we shot the, that that idea at the end of the the character um uh, uh i forget her periwinkle Perry Bottom, I forget, I forget my character's name, but as she comes back and there's that little, you know, you know, moment of you knowing that uh, Michael's gonna be, uh, you know, he, he kind of quote unquote became a good guy. That came up in the shooting of the, of the movie and we said, you know what, why not bring back, not only did that give um, uh, Kayla, the character played by Chloe, Chloe Grace Moritz, um, uh, some fun, you know, you, you liked her again because she righted her wrong, but also it gave Michael kind of like a, um, a little pat on the back for for figuring out what the true meaning of uh you know things are and we just found that at the end of this movie we wanted people to really smile and um although you can also smile when the villain gets his comeuppance um he never did anything that terrible and in the sense of of kayla she she was the one that lied first you know so and we just wanted to be sure that the family at the end of this meeting the actors the characters um everybody kind of found you know found some uh uh, you know, found some uh, some good some good ending. If you could tackle another Hanna Barbera character, or you know, a series or something, who who would it be? Secret Squirrel, Secret Squirrel. Give me Secret Squirrel, Adam Ant. You know, uh, <laughs> give me give me those guys. You know, I love it. I I'd, I'd love to see who you'd get from Morocco Mole. Yeah, see, now we're talking about now. Now you're with me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting, Tim. This was a big thrill. Okay, thanks, guys. This is a great-looking film. Given that we've all been trapped in our houses and we haven't been able to go to New York, that Tim made New York look this good. And and But I love that story he was telling about when they had to go back in and do the, like the follow-up shots outside of Madison Square Garden and digitally remove the masks. Yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah. And the and the same people that animate did the animation for Tom and Jerry, Frame Store, mm-hmm. Also did the animation for uh, Flora and Ulysses, which is on Disney Plus this weekend. That's right. That's right. Which is actually really cute, mm. uh, really cute movie. Mm. But they are very versatile, and uh, they really leaned into the kind of cartooniness in this one. And uh, yeah, no, 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 really, really cool. Check it out, folks. Uh, so again, drops in theaters February twenty sixth, but also on HBO Max. Okay, so I guess. That's going to do it for this week's show. But Drew and I will be back with a brand new episode of Fine Tuning shortly. But until then, there are some other great podcasts that, that you should check out. And among them are Light the Fuse and Light the Wick. So what is going on with, with, with Light the Fuse and Light the Wick? And I, again, we're, I, we're deep in Light the Wick territory, Jim. We're doing that for the next few months. And I think we are coming back. I think our hundred and... 50th show is on the same week as as uh may the 4th so we're gonna that's when we're gonna bring out our paul hirsch interview cannot wait and we're also gonna bring out a brand new logo designed by the geniuses at filmograph who are responsible for the title sequences of mission impossible rogue nation and mission impossible fallout so sort of a cool little that extra bit that is killer holy cow yeah oh i cannot wait are we gonna do merch with this or yes we're gonna do merch we're gonna do everything yeah oh so killer 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 all right yeah well uh, definitely folks you're missing out on truly great stories if you're not listening to light the fuse and light the wick 
Uh, and uh, don't get me wrong, we we had some 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 nice stories over at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. Where, you know, we, uh, you know, Len and I are, are gonna, <laughs> you know, plug it away at Disney Dish. We're, we're oh god, the Joseph Bankowitz archive. We've got a show coming up shortly where Len and Aaron actually hired professional voice actors. I can't wait to listen to this, Jim. I've got it. In, I got a little sneak preview in my did you mailbox? Okay, yes. yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you what I think. Okay, but but yeah, it's yeah. it's the original. Well, uh, to to be fair, it's probably the second draft of the uh, the script for American Adventure because the the script notes say revised first edition. So evidently there was a rewrite, and trust me, there were a lot of rewrites that came after this. But yeah, that they do this amazing job of giving you what the Imaginators first thought they'd do with the American Adventure. And it's an interesting bend on the story. And speaking of, of, of Aaron Adams, he's the gentleman I do the Marvelous Disney uh, podcast with, and we'll be recording a new episode of that shortly. We've got another Universal Giant. We've got a dust and fuse, and I need to get in the bag for next week. whole pile of stuff headed your way. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media and on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. That'll do it for this week, and Drew and I will be back next week with more animation news.